today is one of those special episodes where I have a guest. And today's guest knows a lot about trust. Scott, call sign intake, flew for the U.S. Navy Aerial Demonstration Team, also known as my favorite team, the Blue Angels. Scott flew when another plane's wingtip was 12 inches away from his canopy. Talk about the trust that you have to have in the person flying next to you. But he didn't stop there because Scott flew F-35s and has since then, and until today, flies an L-39 in another demonstration team, the Patriots. Scott will share how he learned to trust his partners, his colleagues, his plane, the people who maintain the plane. Because as I said, in this business, you trust or you die. Right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Okay, we have a great pleasure of having Scott Intake in our show today. Uh, we'll talk about uh, trust in uh, when flying a Blue Angels F-18, flying a Patriot L-39, and in general. So uh, I'll dive right into it. Uh, Scott, uh, I see that you uh, indicated your name is Intake. I know that pilots uh, get... Uh, nicknames, and uh, typically it's associated with a story. So how did you get the name Intake? Yoram, I appreciate the question. Thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, uh, Intake as my call sign. Normally, Navy pilots do something dumb in an airplane or something dumb in port. And so mine is actually uh, neither of those. If I turn to the profile, uh, I have a big nose and I take in more than my fair share of air. So Intake is uh, the part of the jet engine that sucks in all the air. That's how I got intake. Yeah, and and frankly, when when I saw that you go by the uh, call sign intake, I immediately started thinking about you leaving something in the intake of the F eighteen, which can go really really bad once you start the the engine. But I'm glad that's not what happened. Absolutely. So you joined the. Uh, you know what? Even before you joined the Blue Angels, uh, you obviously you served in the Navy. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I had joined the Navy. Uh, interestingly, I saw Top Gun when I was a senior in high school. And my best friend, Bob, and I told all of our friends that we were going to be fighter pilots. And after we both went to college, I went to Pepperdine, I was an accounting major, worked for KPMG Pete Marwick. And uh, we both decided that we would join the service and try to pursue that dream of becoming a fighter pilot. Okay, so and, we're not... We're not going as far back as uh, a an officer and a gentleman. Uh, well, I went through aviation officer candidate school, much like Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. That's how I got my commission and joined the Navy in 1992. Actually, the fall of 1991, started flight school and did my first operational tour in the F-18 over in Japan. 
forward deployed at NAF at Sugi Naval Air Facility at Sugi on the Independence, and then was a flight instructor in, in the F-18 with the Marine Corps down at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, and then subsequently Miramar. And from there, I was selected to the Blue Angels in 1999. Just kind of a quick recap, but the Blue Angels was just part of my 22-year Navy career. Uh, it, was, it was three years of that period. Right. And, and people don't necessarily know that you, you don't spend your entire service in Blue Angels. You only get, uh, what, two or three years, two flying and one training? Well, no, uh, you, every pilot selected gets two years flying in the demonstration as a Blue Angel demonstration pilot. One pilot each year that is selected is the narrator for the team. And I was the junior person the year that I was selected with Hunter Hobson. He was our Marine and Kevin Calling, uh, the other Navy pilot that was selected. And I was the junior guy, so I got to be number seven. Uh, kind of the advanced member of the uh, advancement member of the team. I, I went to the air shows before everybody else to set it up, and then got to do all the VIP rides and then narrate the show. So it was a heck of a year. We had a great time. Yeah, you know. By the way, I, I have to share something with you. I told you before the show that the F eighteen. I loved the F eighteen ever since it came out. Ever since it was an F seventeen, and it lost to the F sixteen on a U.S. Air Force bid, and. Uh, McDonnell Douglas turned it around and uh, made it an F-18, uh, which I think is is the best looking plane ever. And uh, I actually had to I visited the uh, facility where they make them in uh, St. Louis. Oh, it's a great assembly line. I have been there. I, I am a huge fan of the F-18. Yeah. I've got 4,000 hours in the F-18. I have spent a lot of time flying that airplane, uh, and I think it's incredibly capable. <laughs> you know, the, it, it's funny that... Um, You know how people have um, their bucket list. Uh, my bucket list only had for a very long time one item. And I, I'm saying a very long time. That's including now. I, it's not a place in the world where I want to see. I want to sit in the backseat of an F-18 landing on a carrier and taking off from a carrier. That's it. That's the only thing. Don't know how I'll ever do that, but that's the one thing on my bucket item. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's a good goal to have. Uh, maybe you need to call the Navy recruiter, Yoram, and see if they can get you into flight training. Yes, yes, definitely, because they typically uh, recruit uh, 58-year-olds. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> They're going to put me on a very old plane. So you started with the uh, Blue Angels in 1999. Uh, we actually moved from Israel to uh, U.S. and uh, essentially in California in 98, late 98. And in 99 was the first time in Fleet Week that we saw the Blue Angels, uh, that was amazing. I've never seen anything like that. But in 2000, we saw, we saw them every year. I mean, I see them here in Texas every time they come. Uh, but in 2000, I'm going to guess that I saw you fly. Uh, you very well could have seen me fly if you were watching the show during Fleet Week. Yes. Um, then you would have seen me. At a minimum, you would have heard me. Uh, as the narrator in 2000, uh, I don't know how long you were in San Francisco, but it's such an iconic show site. Yes. And the Blue Angels are there to certainly represent our maritime services. And who gets to fly like that over San Francisco? I, honestly, I still pinch myself having had the opportunity and still getting to do it with the Patriot Jet team. But uh, yeah. absolutely. And, uh, and, and just as a sidebar, I am headed to Tel Aviv oh. uh, first week of November to go spend a little bit of time in Israel for my second time 
back. And I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, that, that's cool. I, I've just been there and my wife just just been there. We actually go at, at different times. But, uh, you know, the, when you flew in, so we saw them every year. Uh, in San Francisco until 2003. 2003, we already moved to Texas, but we came back to do a few things in California during Fleet Week. So we saw uh, the Blue Angels uh, one more time there and, and every time here. But um, you made my daughter cry. I mean, you may not know that, but, you know, when you go over the, uh, the audience at uh, low speed with full throttle, I get excited. My daughter started crying. My older daughter started crying. Uh, younger was not born yet. And so, by the way, she says hi. Oh, fantastic. Please tell her I'm apo- I apologize that we made her cry. And it wasn't on purpose. It was just <laughs> the noise of the airplanes, I am sure. So let me go to the uh, topic of this podcast. And the topic is trust. And the first question I have to ask you is... Uh, you know, there are pilots. I, I fly planes. I, I flew in San Francisco over the Golden Gate Bridge with a uh, Piper Cherokee, not with an F-18. So, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much you push the throttle. You don't do 500 knots. You don't do you don't break this the sound barrier. Um, but flying in the Blue Angels and, and now in the Patriots and, and for uh, my audience, uh, Patriots is a demonstration team that uh, flies L-39s, and I'll talk, I'll ask you about uh, the L-39, but I have to ask you, do you have, because when you fly a Blue Angel, how far is the wingtip from, uh, if you're number, oh, you're number five, but still, when you fly the the Delta formation, how close is uh, the uh, wingtip of uh, the next plane next to you to your windshield? To your canopy. The, the short answer is at the end of the season, which is in November of each year, it can be within a foot, within 12 inches from wingtip to canopy. Yes. And so it, it's really, really a tight formation, which is the foundation of trust. And so the interesting thing about the team, I had mentioned getting selected with Kevin and Hunter. We hire three new pilots every single year to the six ship Delta formation. And so for 77 years, the Blue Angels have had this incredible culture of excellence that is founded in trust and respect. And that we do that through the debrief. And the only way to debrief effectively and have the opportunity to build that foundation of trust and respect is being able to acknowledge your own mistakes and errors and or deviations from the standard. We call it safeties. So after a flight demonstration in the debrief, I would say something like, I'll take a safety in a high performance climb because I rotated too slow and uh, or pulled down in the split S too low and I was 50 feet too low and I was 20 knots too fast. And I, by taking, by self-identifying I am acknowledging to the others that I make mistakes, but that I am absolutely willing to learn from them. I am willing to have no ego whatsoever and take the feedback from everybody else on the team. And that's how year in and year out for 77 years, the Blue Angels have been the world's greatest flight demonstration team by foundationally building that trust and respect through the debrief process, and that's all embedded in the culture. That's how we get 
12 inches wingtip to canopy separation at the end of the year because we have gotten as good as we can get flying. And then right at the end, we shake hands and say, what an incredible season. We had a great time. Bring us three new pilots and we will make them the best in the world as well through trust and confidence. Let me ask you, trust really compensates for fear. When you're afraid of something, then the way to compensate, the way to go over your fear barrier is by trusting, trusting other people, trusting the machine, trusting yourself. Uh, but let's start with the fear. Do you have a death wish to go on a team like that? And even now with the Patriots, then no. you're still flying a pretty heavy plane, heavier than air, which is why the V, what the V was for in the squadron numbers originally in right. the Navy. But uh, it's heavier than it's much heavier than air. It's flying pretty fast. It doesn't want to stay up there in the air if you don't control it right. Do you have a death wish? No, I definitely don't have a death wish. Uh, interestingly, though, in September of 1999, when I joined the team, uh, we had a very severe uh, fatal accident where two Blue Angel pilots were killed uh, October 28th, 1999. And I was uh, the only uh, safety officer, F-18 safety officer on the team. And I was asked to investigate that accident, uh, which is a, a crushing uh, uh, work uh, responsibility because uh, you're you're in the field uh, with uh, airplane uh, and you know the people that lost their lives uh, and and so from a fear perspective I carried that burden of loss and potential to have an incident and or accident um, and I didn't I, I was able to compartmentalize and trust my teammates because we absolutely had to uh, and wanted to. But uh, my last flight when I landed in the F-18 Blue Angel number five in November of 2002, uh, I as soon as I touched down, I just started sobbing and I was crying. And it wasn't from the fear that I might have an incident or accident, it was from uh, the relief that I had survived this very high intensity, high risk uh, evolution for three years, having lost two teammates in uh, October of 99 and now November of 2002 through the trust, respect, debriefing, um, uh, I, we, I had made it. Um, and, and not to be confused or have your uh, listeners think that uh, it's, it, it, it is high risk, but we mitigate that risk uh, by building the trust and having standards uh, and debriefing every flight to dial up our execution. So uh, the fear, not really, definitely not a death wish. I happen to be an adrenaline junkie, Yoram, uh, where I love to go fast. I mean, I, you talk about feeling the need for speed. I yeah. definitely feel the need for speed. Uh, but as a 55-year-old man, I'm having to dial back on that a little bit uh, and recognize uh, the, any limitations that I might have. But I still fly for the Patriot Jet Team. That's still founded on trust and respect. And you have to hold the standard uh, for yourself and the, your teammates to execute what was briefed um, or communicate if there is an airborne change. And so 
Uh, you know, now at 55 and flying for the Patriot Jet Team, what my wife calls the master's division, uh, <laughs> I, I don't I have a healthy respect for what we do, but I don't I love doing it because the intensity of it and the team and the bonding of the team is so significant all the way down to the trust that we place in our uh, maintenance personnel that maintain the aircraft because the machine has to be running as well as the human being that is operating it. Uh, and that was true in the Blue Angels. It's true with the Patriot Jet team. Uh, and I'm really just honored to have the opportunity to have to have flown for the Blue Angels and certainly to continue to fly for the Patriots. Uh, yeah. I apologize. That was a long answer, but <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very detailed and meaty subject uh, that is worth digging into. So I but, but here's here's yeah. an interesting question. You know, um, the machine itself, the F-18, you flew the F-18 for quite a few bit, uh, quite a few years, uh, quite a few hours uh, with that machine. At some point, you really start to feel the machine. You really start to feel comfortable. You can trust the machine. But you get into the Blue Angels and relatively very quickly, you get to fly with people that you don't have a very long relationship with uh, to, to be able to build that trust. How do you accelerate building a trust and, and to fly an F-18 12 inches or even at the beginning, at the beginning, you're what, three feet away, four feet away? It's still pretty close. Um, how do you build that trust that quickly with people you don't know? So it's interesting because I'm not sure that it's built that quickly. If you take it back to flight training and working through primary to intermediate to advanced when you're in jets, you are foundationally building this respect for the capabilities of the people that you are flying with. So if you can land an $80 million airplane on the back of a billion dollar ship at sea at night, there is a level of competence and skill set and physiological capability that exists. Now you get selected to the Blue Angels, and it is only amplified uh, because you're taking the same skill sets that you use in an operational squadron and tightening it down. Like you said, three, four feet apart, and ultimately, not in all the maneuvers, but some of the maneuvers uh, to, down to within 12 inches of each other. And so foundationally, for years, we have built that trust. Uh, and then and that's through the same debriefing process and letting go of your ego and being willing to learn. You have to be willing to identify where you have a weakness or an opportunity to improve. Let go of your ego and recognize that you have the capability to do it and then move forward each and every day uh, to get better. Yep. And you not only have to hold yourself to the standard, but you have to hold your other teammates to the standard. And sometimes that can be a challenge uh, by having the courage to debrief uh, a peer or somebody senior and let them know where their, uh, their I, I hate to use weaknesses, but their opportunities to improve and accelerate their performance. So that's a really great question. But foundationally, naval aviation, it's embedded. We just dial it up a little bit 
with the Blue Angels, certainly. Yeah, a- actually, I would disagree with you that there is no there. There are weaknesses. I have weaknesses. You have weaknesses. Exactly. Everybody yeah. has weaknesses. I think we're being a little too sensitive these days. We don't want to use the word weaknesses. We're going to call it areas for improvement where, you know, in fact, we may have weaknesses. But but I heard two things in what you said. One was that, yes, you didn't know those people that all of a sudden you're going to be flying four feet to 12 inches away from, you didn't know them, but that trust was transferable from the fact that you know, you knew, I mean, nobody comes out of, uh, you know, the Naval Academy into an, a blue F-18 with yellow numbers on them and starts flying the Blue Angels. So you knew that the Navy took those pilots through very rigorous process and, and training, and they got to a level of proficiency that you're making the assumption, if I'm going to be flying next to somebody like this, I know that I can trust them, even if I don't know them yet. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and occasionally somebody that will be selected to the team because they have the social skills uh, <laughs> to uh, travel with the team 300 out of 365 days, uh, which is really important because we socialize a tremendous amount together. Some people just don't have the physiological capabilities to fly uh, with the Blue Angels. It's it's rare, but it happens. Uh, what's interesting, having gone through the interview process, the first year I was not selected to the team, but uh, I specifically remember a question that I answered in the interview where I, I wasn't fully truthful in my weaknesses, uh, to your point, in my shortcomings as a pilot. And the following year, I was asked the same question, and I answered it truthfully and honestly and shared uh, my shortcomings as a pilot. But I also shared what I was doing personally uh, with my physical skills and my mental skills to improve on those weaknesses. And because of that vulnerability and that relaxation of the ego, I was able to, uh, I was selected that year. And so what the team looks for is people that are, that uh, have the reputation as good pilots, but also have the willingness to be better day in, day out and hold themselves accountable to the standards of the Blue Angels. And and it's, it's interesting you bring this up because, uh, Trust is not all competence. I mean, you may be a very competent pilot, but uh, trust is made of other things, other softer skills. You know, it's not enough to know how to fly an F-18 if you are not social enough. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm a strong believer in when you are part of a team, whether it's Blue Angels or any other high performance, high risk, high whatever team, um, your ability to socialize, to become friends with those people, dramatically impact the level of trust that they have in you and that you have in them. Absolutely. And 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 I had mentioned the word courage, uh, but there is an element of courage, transparency, selfless solar service, vulnerability, uh, letting go of your ego and uh, to to build that trust and all of those things play in. Uh, it is not easy for people to tell somebody else that they have a weakness. But what I would tell your listeners, when somebody tells you that you have a weakness or a shortcoming, 
they're not telling you that you are incompetent. If you right. were incompetent, they wouldn't share that information with you. They're actually telling you that they believe in you. They believe in you so much that they're willing to share their experience and they believe that you have the capability to achieve more in whatever that is in any organization. So when you get debriefed and somebody is giving you, let's call it constructive criticism to improve, they're actually saying to you, I believe in you so much that please take my suggestions. And if you implement these suggestions, then you can improve your performance in the execution, not only individually, but for the organization. And yeah. I think that's important. <laughs> In my research, what I found was that there is actually, first of all, it's a reciprocal relationship. If sure. I trust you, I am, and, and this, these are the numbers that I found. If I trust you, I am 240% more willing to be vulnerable with you, to yeah. admit to my mistakes, to my shortcomings, to my weaknesses, 240% more. And guess what? If I'm willing to do that, you trust me more because you know, when somebody tells you that they're perfect, they, they will not admit to their mistakes, you're worried. I mean, I'm guessing sitting in the uh, front seat of an F-18, well, if it's a seat, it, there's the only seat, uh, of an F-18, 12 inches away from you is someone who says he's perfect. Yeah. And you're wondering, at what point am I going to find some imperfections that he is not willing to admit to? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point. And you said it right when you said that we all have weaknesses. We all know that we have room for improvement, but the willingness to improve yeah. is absolutely critical. And you have to have that shared respect for each other to do it and to move forward uh, as an organization, as a team, as a company. I, I like to talk about uh, uh, the use of pronouns. Okay. So when you're, when you're planning and, and, and putting your team together and trying to get them riled up, I love the pronouns we, us, and our, right? We're going to do a great job. Let's go out there and we can do great things. It's our responsibility uh, and we can win together, those kind of uh, terms. But in the debrief, if I stood in front of you as the leader and said, we could have done better. We could have communicated better. We could have planned better. We could have uh, executed better. It was our responsibility. I'm pushing blame on you. And that's what you hear. But if I stand in front of you and say the exact same thing with uh, individual pronouns, I didn't communicate enough. I wasn't very uh, good at communicating the plan and the expectations of the execution, and it was my responsibility. What did I just do with you by using those pronouns, Yoram? Yeah. It's, I took responsibility for it. Yeah, right? yeah. I took responsibility for it, and now you're going, gosh, this person shared their weaknesses and shortcomings, and now... I will be willing and more vulnerable to share mine. And and again, it's a reciprocal relationship. Your right. ability to do that, uh, give credit to all, take accountability to mistakes yourself. Yeah. Uh, that what builds the trust of the others in you. Because yeah. you know what? Uh, guess what? Your wingtip is 18. Well, actually, not if you're flying number five or six. Your wingtip is... 18 inches from another wingtip, but not another canopy. I well, no, yeah, what's interesting is uh, the canopy is right here. And uh, the, the wingtip of the other aircraft uh, is 12 inches. 
in yep. November when we're the best that we can be. No kidding. We are remarkably close to each other on many of the, we call them sets, many of the sets. Yeah. And again, that, that's where the element of time comes in. The, the, we spend more time, we practice more, but you also get to trust the other person. My guess, I mean, I, I've seen what it looks like in videos. I haven't flown in a Blue Angel or, or Patriot or, or any other uh, demonstration team, but uh, I've seen it. It's not, they're not static like they look from the ground. They move all the time. And when you get to look at the person next to you and you go, I can predict what they're doing. I trust that whatever they do, that, <laughs> that wingtip stays not less than 12 inches away from uh, this plexiglass here. Um, then uh, it allows you to get closer to them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And, you know, you talked about number five being on the outpost and number six. Uh, think about the trust that two and three have to have because they're wedged in between number one, number five or number one and number six. <laughs> they have nowhere to go. So they are not only expecting, but trusting us to do our jobs and hold our positions the way that uh, to meet the Blue Angel standard, because they're pinched between two airplanes, yeah. uh, uh, which is exceptional trust. But not to mention when you're flying number five and number six, you're flying against each other. Number one, number five and number six. Uh, you are just uh, hoping, wait, are we going right or left? That's <laughs> you don't ask that question at that point. You know, it's really interesting. Randy Howell is, uh, flies the number six jet for the Patriot jet team, and I fly the number five jet. So we, we do opposing maneuvers also. And uh, Randy and I have so much trust in each other, uh, especially having flown together uh, in, in Maverick and with the Patriot jet team, that uh, sometimes he will bring what we call the crowd. That's the separation of the two airplanes that are opposing each other. Uh, I, I will think, gosh, I, he said that he sees me, but it looks like he's aiming right for me. Uh, and we better roll pretty quick uh, as we hit center point, because uh, if we don't, we could actually hit wings because we're five or 10 feet away from each other. But that's at a closure rate of 500 uh, miles an hour or 600 miles an hour. So yeah. uh, that trust uh, needs to be there. So uh, I appreciate that. You know, you led me to two questions. One of them is you, you already threw that bomb up there, the M word. Uh, so two of your planes, uh, I believe did fly in, uh, shooting the movie, uh, Top Gun Maverick. And, and you said that you flew one of them. So tell us a little about that. Yeah. So it kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a great segue into, uh, people expect the Blue Angels to have trust and respect. Uh, when I was asked to train the actors and actresses for Top Gun Maverick, we did that in July, I'm sorry, December of 2018. And then, uh, and that was an incredible experience. We were demonstrating uh, how to not only fly a fighter as a fighter, what that would be like, but allowing the actors and actresses to think about how they would act while also being in a fighter aircraft. Uh, and then in 
uh, July of 2019, I was asked to be a stunt pilot in the movie for the final fight scene. And Randy Howell and I, uh, who I was just discussing, flew that final fight scene. So when Maverick and Rooster steal the F-14 and they're fighting the Su-57s through the canyons and on the way back to the aircraft carrier, uh, Randy and I got to fly all those scenes uh, during a two-week period. What's interesting about that, Yoram, is the trust and confidence, not only of Randy and I, because we had established that, uh, but Kevin LaRosa, who was the aerial pilot for the in the helicopters and the Phenom uh, and leading the cinemat- aerial cinematography team as the aerial stunt coordinator. We had to rapidly develop trust because some of the scenes that we were setting up required pointing directly at a helicopter and at the very last second diving under it and or uh, through the canyons, we the helicopter would be less than 100 feet and we would take the fighters right underneath the helicopter. And that takes a tremendous amount of trust and respect. Uh, and we had to form that in a very rapid fashion. Do you think the helicopter pilot was closing his eyes when you were going under? I did a podcast once and I was sharing the story of how intense it was to fly under the helicopter. And Kevin LaRosa said, you should have seen it from where I was. <laughs> and so uh, we had a really great conversation about that because I'm pointing a fighter directly at him. And at the very last moment, I would either pitch under it uh, or go under it if he was level. So that, that pitch under it, the helicopter would be up. And I would point up and he would want to film down the intakes of the engine because uh, it's a good shot. And then at the last minute, you duck under the helicopter, uh, which you have to precisely time the rate and closure of these two uh, vehicles, helicopter and jet, coming towards each other. That takes a lot of trust on both parts. So you, you talk, we talked a lot about trusting other people, trusting other pilots. Let's talk about trusting the machine. Sure. Uh, you start with an F-18. Did, did you fly Super Hornets as, as well? I was all Legacy Hornets, so A, B, C, and D variants, uh, but vice the E and the F variant. Yeah. Okay. So you flew the uh, the Legacy Hornet. Uh, then you fly an L-39. An L-39 is a Czech trainer used by the Soviet Union back in the time to train their pilots. Um, and then, well, actually not then, but at some point in the Navy, you were flying F-35s. Uh, right. So... The interesting thing about trusting the machine is the men and women that work on those machines, because none of this happens without people. So that trust element is absolutely critical. I don't trust the machine. I trust the people that work on the machine. And so in aviation, we always pre-flight the airplane to ensure that it is prepared correctly. What is fascinating about the Blue Angels uh, is we don't pre-flight the airplane. We trust that the mechanics and the maintenance personnel have prepared it, pre-flighted it, and that aircraft is ready to go. And that is a very unique element to the Blue Angels uh, because in every other Navy unit, we pre-flight the airplane, get a chance to look at it, kind of quality control the work. Uh, but there's things that are done inside the airplane that you have to trust that it's done correctly and uh with the trust and knowledge that the people doing the work are doing their very best work 
uh, in accordance with the standards and the manuals um, in doing it correctly. So there's a lot of trust. And and I'm guessing that the trust you have in the uh, mechanics, the uh, the ground crew, uh, that trust probably starts with a transferable trust you trust because not everybody gets to be a mechanic on the blue angels either it's not like oh i just finished mechanic school i'm i'm going to the blue angels uh you you have to trust that they went through a certain rigorous process that will make it tr them trustworthy but over time it starts balancing towards now you know them personally and you know that you can trust them it's kind of it shifts from the what you know about them without knowing them personally towards knowing them personally and trusting them because of the personal knowledge and, and acquaintance with them. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's true. And, and I talk a lot uh, when I talk about leadership, about valuing and respecting uh, the employees and the selfless service that is required. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I would talk about the selfless service up and down the chain. Uh, it was my responsibility as a commanding officer to serve all of the people in the unit um, and I consider that my responsibility, but the secondary effect of that is that people felt valued and respected uh, and had ownership within the organization because of that relationship, that uh, building that you were talking about. It's absolutely critical. Uh, and in that same regard, there's an, uh, with that ownership, there's, a, uh, you know, companies that have good strategic visions and communicate that vision uh, have ownership buy-in by the people in the business organization team. And, and once you have developed that purpose-driven ownership, then people are committed to uh, achieving the strategic goals of the organization. And so they will ultimately uh, ratchet up the execution of their jobs. And so that actually leads us to uh, one of the, the last questions I have. Uh, but you know, before, before I get there, before I get there, uh, you're involved with the Blue Angels Foundation. Yes, sir. Okay. Tell us a little about that. I mean, I know that just recently a charity navigator uh, gave it a hundred out of a hundred, which means that you can really trust that organization to use their donations for good. Tell, tell us a bit about that foundation. What does it do? So the Blue Angels Foundation is uh, committed to giving back. And I was asked to be on the board of directors back in 2021. And so our primary mission right now is to prevent veteran suicide. And much like saying weakness, uh, some people don't like to use that term. People get a little uncomfortable when you talk about suicide, but there are 17 veterans and five active duty members on average that are taking their lives each day. And uh, the people might say, well, they need to go to the VA, the Veterans Administration, but uh, that's a government entity and people are concerned about admitting that they might need some uh, help mentally and or physically because they don't want it on their record. And so the Blue Angels Foundation provides funding uh, to Emory in Atlanta who can provide uh, 
anonymous and continuous counseling services uh, along with UCLA. We're currently trying to work a program with John Hopkins where we use the juggernaut brand of the Blue Angels um, to uh, drive funding that we can then distribute to behavioral specialists that can get the veterans the help that they need and raising awareness to it. So the prevention of veteran suicide is is critical uh, and it needs attention. So I appreciate you letting me talk about it because people need to be aware of it, not afraid of it, but acknowledge that it exists and that there is something that we can do about it. And then another project that we're deeply involved in is transitional housing. So uh, as our armed forces members get injured uh, and need a prosthetic or a service animal, uh, normally they would leave the hospital and then go right to their home. And But they haven't learned the skills to work with their prosthetic maneuver around the house, operate a wheelchair, integrate with their families, work with their service dog, whatever their specific need is. And so we have worked with Freedom Station in San Diego uh, to help fund transitional housing where there can be multiple veterans living together, going through the same challenges that are inherent with those uh, physical and or mental disabilities that they have, and they can work together uh, to learn to live again uh, before they go home uh, to their own residence. And so both things that I'm very, very proud of uh, and proud of our accomplishments. And I'm, I'm grateful and I'm sure that a lot of other people are grateful for the efforts, uh, the Blue Angel Foundation and you specifically. When I saw the, the, the first time I heard about you, when I saw a post that you had with a writer's retreat back, I think, in August of last year, when you were doing an outline for a book. And guess what? Right behind your right shoulder. I think it's your right shoulder. Yeah. yeah if, I can read, if I can read top down, then it's your right shoulder. Here's the book, Full Throttle. Tell us about the book. Tell us what you do other than fly jets like your tails on fire. Yeah, so uh, with Maverick, uh, a lot of people started saying, Scott, how did you get to fly in Maverick? So you saw the movie in 1986 with everybody else, and then 33 years later, you're flying as a stunt pilot. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, incredible things that took place on the journey between those two items. And my dad, who was a submarine officer in the Navy, always said, Scott, your stories are absolutely outrageous. These stories of aviation, you should write them down. And so uh, it, it, he's still with us. Uh, he turns 86 this year. And so people were asking about Maverick. And I thought, OK, now is the time to write this book. Uh, about how I have been able to do the things that I have been able to do, whether it's the five combat tours, flying with the Blue Angels, flying with the Patriot Jet Team, Maverick, F-35 Command. Uh, and it's the ups and downs because it hasn't all been uh, roses. There have been uh, many challenges. And I just talk about that and how to persevere and overcome uh, and continue to uh, at least try to achieve great things. Uh, by uh, saying yes to opportunities, uh, willing to let go of your ego and uh, improve by recognizing your weaknesses, embracing failure, and then asking for help when you need it. Uh, and I think those three elements are really critical. And so that's kind of the theme that weaves through the book uh, with the ups and downs. So the, the book is Full Throttle, 
uh, From the Blue Angels to Hollywood Stump Pilot. It's available where books are sold. Uh, you can click on Amazon or scottcartvet.com and it'll take you to a link where you can buy the book. And 20% of the proceeds go towards the Blue Angels Foundation uh, as we continue to prevent veteran suicide. That's that's great. That's uh, Well, Scott Intake, I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything that you gave uh, our audience today. Uh, it's, it's important. You know, uh, one question that just came to mind. When you fly, whether you flew at the Blue Angels, okay, granted, uh, we were both younger back then when you flew for the Blue Angels. But when you fly today at 55, still pretty close to another plane, are you afraid? No, no. Uh, if we don't, if we haven't flown in a long time, I will be anxious uh, but we generally will do an academic session. We do what's called walkthroughs, which is visualization of what we're going to execute and how we're going to execute it. So by the time we actually get in the jets, we have already flown the show or the practice for that day two or three times. Uh, so by the time we get in the airplanes, uh, we visualized it, we've seen it. And now we're actually executing it real life, but it's the fourth or fifth time that we have flown it that day. So in your head, so it, yeah, yeah, absolutely anxious, uh, but not afraid. Yes. Okay, Scott Intake again. Thank you for your service. First of all, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for what you do to the Blue Angels Foundation. <laughs> thank you, Arm. I appreciate it. Have a great day. I could have talked to Scott for another two, three hours. But as you heard, Scott does not have a death wish. Scott took risks that very, very few people will take. But he did that because he trusted the people next to him and the people on the ground. I hope this was helpful. Until next week, may trust be with you. This is The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.